Well, good morning. <laughs> what a beautiful morning for a family festival after the service, huh? No rain, no scorching heat. It's going to be a gorgeous day. And I praise God for that because it didn't look like that about five days ago. It looked like we we're going to have a rainy day, but God has blessed us. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. And while you're turning there, you might just silence your cell phones. We have some interesting ringtones go off every now and then. I had it happen to me in the theater just the other day. Maybe just silence your phone um, or turn it all the way off so you're not tempted to check it. Did you, did you know that the typical American will check his or her phone 96 times per day? But if you are 18 to 24 years of old, of age, it's twice as often, it's 190 times per day that they will check their phone. That'd be like four to eight times just during the duration of our message time. <laughs> That's a lot. So if you're tempted, you might just turn it all the way off. Now, I know that with people using Bible apps, it's kind of easy to hide it. <laughs> I'm just searching for First John in Facebook. I've actually, I, I, you know, when I'm not teaching, I sat in the back and I've actually watched somebody with their Bible open and on the pages of the Bible, their cell phone, and it was open to, to Facebook. And there's like turning pages going on here and scrolling through Facebook and responding going on on the left side. Kind of happens. Well, People check their phones so often because we get a lot of messages. Here's a few more stats for you. On average, an American in business will get 121 emails per day. Now, along with that, the typical American, 41 text messages and five voicemails, voice messages per day. What we do with those messages probably depends on who they're coming from, right? I keep getting this call from a guy named Likely. You get, you get calls from Mr. Likely. He calls me like two, three, four, sometimes five times a day. I don't know what his mom was thinking, but she gave him the first name Scam. <laughs> Scam Likely calls me over and over. I just, I stopped answering it. In fact, anymore, unless it's someone that's in my contacts, I don't even answer it. I just let it go to voicemail. I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you if you call me, but I'll put you in my contact if I know who it is. But there's just so many other messages. So what we do with those messages depends on who they're coming from. I'm sure you've been in a meeting and you get a call or text and you're like, I'm sorry. I have to take this. Because it's either from someone important or it involves a very important matter. And so we have to take it. Uh, hold on just one sec. <laughs> It'll only take me a moment. I'm really sorry. Okay. So. We get a lot of messages. Right? Well. This morning, we're going to be looking at a message, and it's going to be a very important message. We just started a new series last week, and the series title is Absolute Certainty, and it's in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are letters or epistles. Do you remember the key verse? 
We want to memorize it. Did you memorize it? First John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may remember my quote from Franklin Graham. I'm not talking about thinking nothing. I'm talking about knowing, right? Knowing that you have eternal life. Well, as we began last week, we saw that we can have absolute certainty of God's truth. And this week, as we move forward a few verses, where our, our title will be Absolute Certainty of Where to Walk. And we're going to cover John, uh, 1 John, ooh, there's a one missing, 1 John 1 and verses 5 through 7. Simple three-point outline. The witness, verse 5. The warning, verse 6. And finally, the way in verse 7. So it's such a short text. In fact, let's just back up to verse 1 and just read those first seven verses together. So I'm, I'm reading from the uh, NIV 1984 translation. It reads, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And then comes our passage for this morning. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is God's word to us. And I want to begin this morning by looking at the witness. Now, in the opening verses, just maybe many of you might not have been here, but in the opening verses last week, John spoke about what he and the other apostles and thousands of others had seen and heard and touched. And he said it was, quote, that which was from the beginning. And he also called it the word of life. And so we broke that down and we saw that it's none other than the person of Jesus Christ, the logos, the word. And, and it's the one who pre-existed before all eternity, the eternal one. He's the self-revelation of God. He's the creator of all things. This is what it was that they saw. And not only the person of Jesus Christ, but the plan of salvation was all laid out before time even began. Our salvation was not an afterthought. God planned it out before he even created the heavens and the earth. And so... The person of Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation were from the beginning. But it says in those first verses, but then they appeared, or in some translations, were made manifest to John and the apostles and thousands of others. And they saw these things with their own eyes. They heard them. They touched them. And the apostles were committed to proclaiming that which they saw so that you and I may share in that eternal life. 
So in the first four verses, he's setting the stage for what he's about to say next. And so in verse 5, the first verse of our text this morning, it said, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So big question, from whom? Who's this message from? Because we just said that who a message from kind of depends on what we do with it, right? Well, it is from none other than God directly, the eternal one, the creator of all things, the word of life. That's who this message is from. It's not from John. He's simply the messenger delivering the message. So this message is from God to you and me, and it concerns eternal life. There couldn't be a more important message. Now imagine if we let a text message or an email or anything else distract us from this message, God's message to us. So the message begins with this simple statement in verse 5. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's a simple statement like scripture itself. It's been said that it's shallow enough for a toddler to splash in, yet deep enough for a scholar to swim in and not touch the bottom. That's this particular phrase, like scripture itself. And so I want to, just continuing with that metaphor, I want to take a deep dive into this because this statement is at the core of a lot of what lies ahead. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Of all the metaphors that are used for God, bread of life, word, all these things, life, I think, or light is one of the most fascinating because it's so multifaceted. It just fits on so many different levels. And what I realized is I was just kind of meditating on this this week. God didn't like create everything and then say, oh, light. That, that kind of described who I am. I'll use that as a metaphor. No, God created the very light knowing that he would use it to describe his nature. I think that some of the very properties that he gave to light are based on the fact that it would represent who he is. God is light. Not God is like light. God has light. God is light. And so... We find in scripture then, throughout the Bible, that light speaks of righteousness and, and purity. And darkness speaks of sin and evil. We see this metaphor throughout scripture. It's speaking of spiritual light and spiritual darkness at this point. I heard about a confrontation between a mother and her young son. And the mother asked her son, young man, there were two cookies in the pantry this morning. May I ask you why there's only one there now? And without missing a beat, the little boy said, I must, it was so dark, I must have missed the other one. <laughs> he had intentions. See, there's more than just physical darkness. There's a little bit of spiritual darkness going on there too, isn't there? Well, it says in verse 5 that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And one of the properties of light is that if there's light, there can't be darkness. And if there's darkness, there can't be light. They're mutually exclusive. You can't have both together. And in the same way, if there's righteousness, there can't be evil. And if there's evil, 
there can't be righteousness. They're mutually exclusive. So verse 5 is saying that God is total pure light, meaning he's perfectly righteous. God cannot lie. He cannot mislead. He cannot sin. He cannot be the source of evil. He exists in perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. So this is the meaning of light in a spiritual sense. It depicts this righteousness. Yet consider this. In the Old Testament, when God appeared to mankind, he was often accompanied with bright physical light. Let me give you a couple examples of this. He appeared as a blazing torch when he passed through the pieces of the sacrifice that, that Abraham or Abram had laid out. A bright flaming torch. His presence was a pillar of fire as he led the Israelites out of Egypt through the desert into the promised land. Ezekiel speaks of the courtyard of the temple being full of the radiance of the glory of God. Light. And then if you fast forward to the New Testament in the book of Revelation, it says this in Revelation 20. It says, the city, referring to the New Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. This is real, physical light, not just spiritual light. And so, what this physical light is, is just the radiance of God's glory. It can be seen. It's the physical manifestation of his righteousness. Now, there's an account in Exodus 33. Moses had this bold request of God. He said, now show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. So God placed his hand, he placed Moses in a cleft in the rock, and he placed his hand over Moses while his glory passed by. God is so pure, and he is so radiant that us in our sinful state, in our bodies of flesh, cannot even look upon the face of God and live. We would die. His light is that marvelous. That's who God is. He's pure righteousness displayed in glorious, marvelous light. I love when Matt leads that song, Marvelous Light, into marvelous light, I'm running. Well, another property of light is that it radiates out from its source. And so, this too describes God. He doesn't keep his light to himself. It flows from him. And as it does, it blesses others. Let me give you some verses. Matthew 4.16 says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Thou speaking of the coming of Christ into the world. And John said in his gospel, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So what does it do for us? Okay, God shines his light on me. What exactly does that do? Well, first of all, it gives us revelation. Second Corinthians tells us this clearly. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness made his light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? God shines his light on us to reveal who God is so that we can know his nature, his character, his history, his will for us. This light that shines from God reveals who God is. And it not only reveals who God is, this light reveals who we are. I'll read you another verse, John 3, 19 and 20. It says, this is the verdict. This is a judge speaking. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who loves evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his evil deeds will be exposed. Light reveals reveals our sinfulness. Deborah and I both like scuba diving. And whenever we take a dive trip, we like to try to get in at least one or so night dives. And when you go night diving, it's kind of cool because there's creatures that don't come out in the day so much, but they're out at night. Kind of creepy things like eels. They're not just like snapping at you from the rock. They're like swimming. Octopus come out. You see lobsters, all kinds of cool creatures. But the thing about diving at night, as you go into the water, it's as black as ink. There's nothing underneath the surface illuminating it. And any light that might come from the stars or from distant you know, lights on the land, it gets filtered out very quickly by the water. And so you end up with this totally pitch black darkness. Now, it would be, what well, is for the first time you do it, it is kind of terrifying. Because you can't tell, like, if Jaws is right behind you. <laughs> but ignorance is bliss. I kind of feel comfortable. Like, I can't see what's back there. It's, you know, I'm good. But actually, you have a, they call it a torch. You have a, a flashlight, a spotlight on your wrist that illuminates what's in front of you. And it illuminates the beauty, but also the dangers that are before us. And so it's this amazing experience diving at night. But it only illuminates just a little piece. God's light illuminates everything so that we can see all of creation in light of his glory. We can see it the way he sees it. We can know truth. We can know danger. We can know right and wrong. So God's light brings revelation, revelation of who he is, revelation of who we are. And then secondly, it gives direction. It shows, it shows us the way of life and how to walk before God. So Psalm 119, 105, you know this well, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I can see where I'm going. And John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. God's light, it shows us where to walk. It shows us how to walk in this life. It shows us the way of life. On a foggy night, a ship's captain saw what he thought was another ship approaching. And so he had his signal man signal him with light. He said, Turn to the right 10 degrees. And the light message signal came back. No, you turn to the south 10 degrees. And the captain, a little miffed, he sends another message. He says, I am the captain. Turn to the right 10 degrees. 
And then the response comes back. I'm a petty officer. Turn to the left, to the south, 10 degrees. Well, now the captain's kind of miffed. And he goes, I am a battleship. Turn to the north, 10 degrees. And the answer comes back, I am a lighthouse. You turn to the south, 10 degrees. Well, apart from God's light to give us direction, the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Get your mind around that. There is to us, mankind, humans, there is a way that in and of ourselves seems right. But it leads to death. We need God's light. We need his revelation. So a third thing about God's light is that it brings salvation. When we turn to him in faith, he actually exchanges his light for our darkness. Think about that. He gives us his very light. Now listen to Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. It says, for you were once darkness. He's writing this to a church group of believers in Ephesus for you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord and then he admonishes them live as children of light what does that look like he says for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness righteousness and truth see that light is God's righteousness in us it doesn't come from us but it shines through us we're to live as children of light So the message begins with this simple statement, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When you process through all of scripture and look at this verse in light of that, I didn't mean that, um, what you see is light is righteousness, and his light shines out to give us revelation, to give us direction, to give us salvation. And John saw and heard this firsthand. He was an eyewitness, and he's declaring it to us. That's the witness. And so I want to look next at verse 6, the warning. It says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Now, this verse has sparked a great debate amongst Bible scholars. And it pretty much divides them into two camps. I'll call them group one and group two. Group one says, well, this verse is talking about unbelievers who act like they're saved, but they're not really saved. Group two says, no, this is speaking of believers who are saved, but they're not living like it. So you'll find a long list of reputable scholars on both sides of that debate. Those who think the we in these verses is speaking of believers and those who think the we is speaking of unbelievers. The first group um, actually is unbelievers. There's probably more people in that camp, more scholars that say, no, this has to be unbelievers because they can't be, you know, walking in darkness and not living in the truth. That can't be true of believers. This is unbelievers. There's a long list. Probably a majority of scholars are in that first group. Personally, I kind of land in the second group. I believe this is speaking of believers who are not living like believers. 
And I kind of want to show you why, but in doing so, let me just read you the words of a, a really well-known commentator, John MacArthur. He's in the first camp. He says these are unbelievers. He says this. He says that the we in verses 6, 8, and 10 is not referring to genuine Christians, but the we in verses 7 and 9 is referring to genuine Christians. It just seems really unlikely to me that the subject of these consecutive verses would swing wildly back and forth with no warning or indication. We means this. Now it means that. Now it means this. Now it means that. Back and forth. Believer, unbeliever, believer. It's the same we. So that kind of confuses me, especially if you take into account the fact that this letter is written to you who believe in the Son of God. This is written to believers, to the church. So I feel that if this was referring to unbelievers, it would use a pronoun like they rather than we. And that's what John does in other passages. If you were to flip forward a page to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. But clearly unbelievers. And then in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. See, I think verse 6 in our text is saying that if we, as believers, claim to have fellowship with him, but yet walk in the darkness, we, as believers, lie and do not live by the truth. I personally believe it's speaking of believers. Now, it doesn't change the essence of the gospel if you believe that or if you believe otherwise, it doesn't make you a heretic. But it does have some implications for how we live and how we understand this struggle that we have as a new creation living in a broken body. This battle of good and evil within us. But here's the thing. I see places in scripture where people who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ still walk in darkness. David did it with Bathsheba. Now, his faith was in God. Jesus Christ wasn't revealed yet. But let me take you to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I'll read you this. It says, it, this is written to a church again. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud, proud. Shouldn't you rather be filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Now the question is that, speaking of a believer or an unbeliever in the midst of the church, you don't have to wonder because you can go forward to verse 5, two verses later. It says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This is a believer and he's acting worse than an unbeliever. This is a believer who's walking in darkness. And scripture said, put him out of the church. Let Satan deal some consequences to him. So that at least his soul might be saved on the day of the Lord. So this is what I see personally happening in verse 6. 
But there's another important distinction, I think, and that is it's talking about walking in darkness, breaking one's fellowship with God, not one's relationship. There's an important distinction. Let me give you an example. If you have a child and that child sins against you, it breaks fellowship. You're, it's not the same. You're not going to run and laugh and play like you did before. Things are going to feel different until there's repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Your fellowship is broken. Maybe you're not going to the park on that play day today. But your relationship isn't broken. It's strained, but it's not broken. You're still the parent. He or she is still the child. The relationship is still there. So, fellowship is broken, but not relationship. And that's, verse 6 of our text is talking about fellowship with God. And so, this is why when we sin, we want to go quickly to God and confess it and ask forgiveness, not to restore our salvation, but to restore our fellowship with God. Does that make sense? Again, if you see this verse differently, it's okay. It's, it's not, it doesn't change the essence of the gospel, but it does, I think, change how we view people struggling with sin. Now, having said that, I wouldn't want somebody to believe that they can live any way they want and just go, well, I said a sinner's prayer back when I was a child, so it doesn't matter. I can live any way I want and I'm saved. No, when you're saved, God puts his Holy Spirit in you, his Holy Spirit, his spirit of righteousness and that changes our heart. We no longer desire evil in the same way. We don't run after desire. If we are continually, habitually, intentionally pursuing evil, I would have a real concern about whether or not we're saved. One person said one time that an unbeliever clings to sin. Sin clings to a believer. So are we grasping for it or is it kind of grabbing at our heels like one of those little yelpy dogs, <laughs> you know? He's trying to shake it. We're trying to shake it off. It's okay if you own a little yappy dog. <laughs> You're not my favorite, but I'm not. I, I better move on. <laughs> so, either way, verse 6 should serve as a warning in big, bold letters. Don't walk in darkness. Don't live like this. Even if you're a believer, there's consequences for this kind of a life. Because your fellowship with him is broken. That means your joy, your peace, your sense of well-being, your comfort from the Lord. They're gone. You don't have that anymore. Because your fellowship with the comforter is broken. You're not living under the blessing of God. You're probably going to suffer consequences so that it might change your mind. That's the definition of repentance. Change your mind. Think differently. Turn around. So how is your joy and your peace and your sense of well-being and your enjoyment of God? Is it full, rich, or is it, does it feel kind of absent or strained? And if it does... Look real closely at your life. Are you walking in darkness? Or are you walking in light? So that's the warning. And then finally in verse 7, we see the way. And it says, If we walk in the light, 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. Now, I kind of like imitating people. You know, I did my imitation of, of Franklin Graham <laughs> last week. If you died tomorrow, do you know that you'll be in heaven with the Lord? You know, I just kind of like doing, or his father, you just come, come as you are. <laughs> you know, he, he kind of sounds a little different. Now, I'm not making fun of them. Well, maybe a little. <laughs> I love people from North Carolina and our visitor from South Carolina, or family member from South Carolina. I love North Carolina. But you know the saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? If Franklin Graham wants to imitate Paul Sommerfeld, <laughs> I'd be flattered. I'll text him after the service. <laughs> Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And scripture says in Ephesians 5.1 that we are to be imitators of God. Imitators of God. We're to study and learn what God is like in terms of his character. And then we're to act like that. We're to follow. That's what it means to follow the Lord. To obey. To be like he is. We move away from our old sinful self and more toward godliness. So... That's essentially what it's saying in verse 7 when it says that we're to walk in the light as he is in the light. We're to live our life in fellowship with him and follow his example of holiness. He was, the, he was, he was God's love and goodness personified in a person. He showed us. He didn't just say this is what God is like. He showed us what God is like. And he said, follow me. Do as I do. Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So we're to imitate Christ. That's, that's kind of what it means to so walk in the light as he is in the light. Think about when you walk with someone. When you walk with someone, you stay close to them. And you certainly go in the same direction. You don't go in two different directions. You don't turn away. You don't run ahead. You don't lag behind. You walk in close step with the other person. And as you're walking together, you talk, you listen, you share your hearts with one another. You experience things together and you enjoy fellowship with one another. See, that's a beautiful depiction of what it looks like to walk in fellowship with God, to walk in the light. When I was about I think six or seven years old, I was given this little plastic stamped out, um, kind of like a little thin statue of Jesus with a, a lamb on one side and a child on the other, and it would glow in the dark. And so if you held it up to the light and charged it up, it would glow in the dark. And it had a real technical name for this. I called it the Jesus glow thing. And so I would ask my mom, mom, have you seen the Jesus glow thing? Well, my stepdad at the time was a pastor. And in our church, we'd have a children's sermonette. So I kind of think even the main sermon at 10, 15 minutes was a sermonette. But we'd have an even shorter one for the kids. And it was like an object lesson. And the kids would come up and there'd be this sermonette. And so I said to my dad, I said, Dad, here's an illustration for your sermonette. You can take my Jesus glow thing. 
And the point of it is, if we stay close to the Lord and we walk in his light, then his light is going to shine through us. And see, I take this little glow thing and I charge it up on the light before I went to bed. And then at night I go under my covers and for about an hour or two it would illuminate things around me. But after that, it'd start fading out unless I charged it up again. And so I told my dad, I said, so this is like our life with Christ. We got to be, stay close to the light so that we reflect his light. And so my dad used that as the children's sermonette. So that was my first sermon illustration at seven years old. <laughs> 50 years later, I can't do any better. So there it is. <laughs> I haven't learned a thing, the Jesus glow thing. <laughs> But it's a, it's a depiction of walking in the light as he is in the light. His light penetrates us. It reveals our sin nature. It reveals his holiness. And he transforms us. He gives us his light in exchange for our darkness. Well, notice in verse 7 it says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, you might expect it to say we have fellowship with God. Well, he just talked about that in verse 6. It says if you don't walk in the light, you're not going to have fellowship with God. Well, the inverse of that, if you're walking in the light, you will have fellowship with God. But this says you'll also have fellowship with one another. And by fellowship, it's not talking about small talk over coffee and donuts. Yeah, I had a great time of fellowship. You know, we kind of talk about little the weather, what have you. It's not talking about that. The word is, that's translated fellowship is the word koinonia. And I love the word koinonia. It speaks of this special, deep fellowship that comes from like-mindedness, being one in spirit and one in purpose with another person in the Lord. That's koinonia. When you serve together and you're serving the Lord, you experience this beautiful koinonia. So our fellowship with God and with one another, vertical, horizontal, they're interrelated. See, if there's a problem in our fellowship with a fellow believer, one or both have a problem in their fellowship with the Lord. They're interrelated. And so it's a little bit symptomatic of where our heart is before the Lord. So think, think about a husband and wife. And maybe the husband is backslidden. He's not walking with the Lord. That couple cannot have the spiritual oneness, the koinonia that God desires. They can have companionship, but not fellowship. Because there's a problem in the vertical relationship that exhibits itself on a horizontal level. So we want to think about our relationships around us. And we want to think then about our relationship with the Lord. Well, I'm good with the Lord. It's just his people that I can't stand. <laughs> Have you ever kind of felt like that? I've, maybe I've thought that. <laughs> no, it... That just can't be. Because when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. So, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, this tells us right there that walking in the light is not referring to perfection. It's not referring to sinlessness. If it did, 
there'd be no need for a walk to purify us from sin. Now, we'll never be perfect this side of eternity. You know that. Walking in the light is not talking about perfection. We still sin. But it is talking about pursuing godliness. And we should be making progress in that direction. That's what a walk is. I was here in my sinful state. God saved me. And now I'm walking with him. And as I'm walking with him, I'm growing in godliness. I'm becoming more and more like him. I'm making progress. So it's not perfection. It's speaking of progress. Moving closer and closer toward a goal. So, when we're walking in the light, we do still sin. We do. That's why we want to go to him quickly, confess that sin, ask for forgiveness. And by his blood, he purifies us from all sin. In a, in a laboratory environment, they'll take instruments that are subject to contamination and they'll put them under ultraviolet light. The ultraviolet UV light actually purifies them. It disinfects them. I think that's kind of a neat thing to think about as we walk in the light of Christ, his light. It's driving out the darkness in our souls and we're becoming pure. We're becoming purified. So the only way in fact that we can have a relationship with the holy God is if we're purified. It's the only way that we can be in his presence. And so this purification for us was accomplished through the blood of Christ on the cross. We sang about that. We talked about that with the Lord's Supper this morning. How did I get to that slide already? Um, And so next week, as we continue in this text, it's going to be talking about sin and forgiveness and purification. So I won't go too much into that. But... I want to wrap this up, and and I want to do so just by kind of recapping where we've been. John is delivering to us a message. It's a message that comes directly from God, and it involves eternal life. It's the most important message you will ever read. More important than anything else we could ever receive. And so we have to be careful that we don't let all of the distractions, the messages of the world, crowd out. What God is saying to you and me through John in his word. It's God's message. Secondly, God is light. He's pure righteousness. There's no darkness in him at all. And the physical display of light is the radiance of God's glory of his righteousness. God doesn't keep his light to himself. He shines the light on us to give us revelation, direction, And salvation. He doesn't leave us in the dark saying, you figure it out. You got into that mess, you find a way out. No, he came down into our darkness, a light had dawned. On those living in the shadow of death, a light had dawned. He came to reveal for us the way that leads to eternal life. He came so that we could know where to walk that path of life. God warns us not to walk in darkness. It breaks our fellowship with him. Don't break our relationship, but it breaks our fellowship. Our fellowship with God is seen in our fellowship with others. If our vertical fellowship is not right, our horizontal one won't be either. And so we need to to carefully consider that. 
We're to imitate God by walking in the light. Again, it doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean progress toward godliness. And finally, when we sin, he purifies us through the shed blood of Christ if we're walking in the light. So you and I don't have to remain in the dark about where we are and where we should be going. God gives us his light so that we can have absolute certainty of where to walk. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are pure light. I love that you don't just use that to describe you. You made that light to illustrate your character, your nature, the very essence of your being. And there's, it's such a rich metaphor, God. And I thank you that you've communicated it to us. And God, I thank you that it's your desire to shine that light on us. To give us the light of life. And God, if we're honest, we have to confess that we don't always walk in your light. In our flesh, we turn away from your light and we dabble in the darkness. Sometimes we just plain stay there, God, and we enjoy it in our flesh. But God, forgive us, purify us, remind us of your perfect will for us, and change us so that we only desire your pure light so that we might just have that light permeating our very being, God, that it might radiate from us, that we can go out as salt and light into a world that doesn't know you, that we can be messengers of your light. God, help us to do this. Help us to do it for your kingdom and for your glory, we pray. Amen.